Hello, and thanks for listening to Behind the Brand, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of some of Australia's most exciting small business success stories. I'm your host, Jen LA, a serial entrepreneur who loves talking all things small business. Each week, I'll sit down with an incredible founder and ask them to share it all, the good, the bad, and the ugly, on my mission to find out exactly what it takes to run a successful small business. From startups to scale-ups and international success stories, you'll hear it all right here on Behind the Brand. If you love what you're hearing and want more, find me on Instagram and TikTok at behindthebrand.podcast. Of course, sharing the good vibes is always appreciated. Share this episode on your stories or leave a podcast review. A little bit of love goes a long, long way. But for now, sit back, relax and enjoy while I take you behind the brand. Hello, everybody. Happy Wednesday and welcome to this week's episode of Behind the Brand. Now, this week's episode is my last Behind the Brand interview for this year. I will be back next week with our season finale advice special in which I sit down with a very special guest and chat through their top 12 pieces of advice that they want all entrepreneurs to know. A big thank you to everybody for listening to the podcast over the past year, over the past two years. It is such a pleasure for me to bring these interviews to you every week and to get your feedback on what you're loving, which guests are inspiring you and how the podcast and these guests have helped you on your business journey. I started the podcast because I wanted to stay involved in the small business world after I had sold my last business and I couldn't imagine how many incredible conversations I've had the opportunity to have and all the great people I've met, both listeners and guests. And I can't wait to come back next year with more. So I will be back. I guess it kind of works out well because we are breaking anyway for the summer. So in the meantime, stay in touch with us via social media. I will be around. I just won't be recording for a few months Okay, well, without further ado, I will introduce this week's guest, our last interview for the year, and that is Claire Spelter, the founder of Bon Maxi. Bon Maxi makes a range of, I guess we'll call them very handy accessories, but what I love about Claire is that she really took a brand that was 100% homemade in her home by hand and turned it into something really huge. I'm talking Claire's products sell out within the first 10 minutes of launching. That's like $150,000 in 10 minutes of launching some of her products. Her products are so in demand. She has a cult customer following and she tells us in this episode all about how to cultivate that customer following how she scaled from homemade all the way up to being factory made to support the demand and all the lessons she's learned along the way. Another tip I will give you is to follow Claire's TikTok. She has done product-based business TikToks, one of one of the best accounts I've seen, honestly, and there's no dancing involved or pointing or anything like that, which I know most of us hate, myself included. So again, a huge thank you to everybody for tuning in this year. I loved bringing you these episodes every week. Thank you so much for all of your support. 
and I will see you in the new year. And by then, the Behind the Brand podcast team would have grown by one tiny person. But first, let's get into our final interview for the year with Claire Spelter, founder of Bon Maxi. Claire, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining Thanks me. Thanks for having me, Jen. Now, I'm so excited to chat to you about your brand because I've known you for probably around a year yeah, now. So. We've worked together on and off for, yeah, for about a year and I love your products. I love your brand stories. My favorite thing about you is every time I ask you if you have something on in stock, you've always sold out <laughs> of it. So, we're going to get into how this is basically your brand yeah. DNA is sold out. But for people who may not be familiar with you um, and your brand, can you please introduce yourself and let me know what Bon Maxi is all about? Of course. I'm Claire Spelter and I am the designer and director of Bon Maxi, which is an accessories label that is all about very handy accessories that solve your daily annoyances. And basically that stemmed from me just having a very disorganized life and being very dissatisfied with all of the offerings on the market and wanting to solve every single problem for everybody. Um. And I love that for someone who's, you always say how unorganized you are whenever we talk, you're always like, no, I'm not organized. I'm not good at cleaning. I'm not good at that stuff. Everything you have is based around organization and making life a little bit easier. Now you launched Bon Maxi, if I'm correct, 2015. Yes, that's right. Tell me about Claire circa 2014. What was she doing? What was her life Well, she was about to pop because she was pregnant with her first child. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was working as a marketing consultant in a work-from-home agency, um, working for one of our largest telcos in Australia, so quite a corporate environment. I'd come from an ad agency background, creative side of things, um, and like that's very much me. I'm very much creative and analytical brain. So I love marketing because it really does marry those two elements. Um, But coming into maternity leave, I was starting to feel a little bit worried because I wasn't going to be paid maternity pay. I was working an hourly job and I thought, oh, wouldn't it be great if I'd be able to stay at home with my child? And I had in the past done portrait painting uh, and I had done commission painting and I thought, oh, maybe I should start bringing that back into play when I'm on maternity leave so I can make, you know, $100 a month contribute to the household. <laughs> That's all I wanted. <laughs> um, so then when my son was born um, in early 2015 and I was at home wondering what on earth I was going to do with my time, I started painting again. There was no mother's group kind of things on Facebook um, and I couldn't find anybody kind of locally who I knew that I could go and hang out with. So I was kind of bored at home. So I hopped onto Instagram and I uh, thought, well, we'll see if there's any small businesses operating on here and marketing themselves. And lo and behold, there was a huge, huge community of people who um, who had these small art businesses and earring businesses. And um, I thought, oh, okay, maybe this is what we can do, you know, while I've got a bit, bit of time on my hands and it kind of grew from there. So obviously you have the arty creative streak that I definitely was not born with. So you started off when you were saying with mm-hmm. portraits, was that like customised portraits of of people, me being like, hey, can you paint a photo of me and my husband and my dog? Yeah, was I was very much in babyland at that point. Uh, and I thought, well, it'd be good if I could do those portraits, which I had done before, but I might do like caricature versions of kid photos. So I was doing a lot of babies and yeah. families and I started painting them on wooden plaques that people could hang up on the wall. And on top of that, I'd done some nursery artwork that I'd printed onto wood. So it was like little wall hangers and things like that, very kind of cutesy baby stuff. 
and that was all going well. But at the end of the day, my son was growing. I was running out of time and custom portraits take a lot of time to get right. And so I started to think, is this something that I might be able to solve a problem? Like my marketing brain was wanting to get a bit more action. You know, what can I do that I can create en masse rather than customized everything? And I started to look for for a problem in my own life that I might be able to solve. Mm -hmm. And then one day I was a big earring wearer back then. I don't so much now because I've got a son who likes to, you know, grab (laughs) <laughs> pretty things. Um, and uh, yeah, one day I was, I was trying to get out the door. Joe, my husband was waiting impatiently for me and I tipped like three or four, uh, jewelry dishes onto the bed, trying to find a matching earring. And I thought, okay, surely there's got to be a better way. And that light bulb just went off. And I thought maybe there is a, a display that I could create that would, you know, link everything together. So I didn't have to spend time rummaging around. Um, and so I researched for a couple of months to see what there was around. And there was like ugly plastic, clear acrylic kind of stuff. And then there was chicken wire in a wooden frame that a guy probably had just, you know, knocked out in his shed. And I thought, well, I'm artistic and I want to solve this problem. Maybe I can paint this intricate design onto a piece of wood and, you know, hold stud earrings and hook earrings and kind of solve everyone's problems. And so I did, I painted one and then I whacked it up on Instagram and out of nowhere, I just had this massive response. Oh my gosh, I need one of these. I had like stockist requests straight away. And, um, we ended up hand drilling 234 holes into A4 pieces of wood. And then I'd paint these designs. And I mean, now plain colors is what really sells in the end. Nobody really cared about my intricate designs. Um, and so (laughs) we're hand drilling and hand drilling and hand drilling all of these holes and sanding and yeah, ended up using machinery. And then now we're manufacturing and we've got a completely different range of products, but, um, yeah, it was very, very humble beginnings. Well, I know from conversations with you, you got to the point of hand drilling, was it about a 1 million holes? (laughs) So how were your wrists? I think I still suffer. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but actually I'm interested in talking about you said you like uploaded pictures mm-hmm. on Instagram and 2015 was such a oh, prime yeah. time for Instagram yeah. brands right it was like the it was like TikTok probably was yeah. last year slash yeah. now it's like the whole you know what I mean? like, it, they will come like <laughs> yes they, they just, just did, did. yeah yeah were you selling it like directly, like someone would DM you and say, oh, hey, sold, can I buy one? Or were you, did you use like a Shopify site? What yeah, did I did a lot of stalking of other small businesses and I found this site called Big Cartel, which you could load five products up for free. So I did that probably for a good eight or nine months. I had that one website, really stretched it out as long as I possibly could before I swapped over to Shopify. But um, yeah, it was it was easy enough to work out, you know, I needed a policy for this. I needed a checkout. PayPal was something that I was, you know, using. So I knew that to look like a legitimate business, that PayPal was really good. I needed to link it in my Instagram. Um, yeah, it was, I, I set myself a deadline and I just, you know, knocked out this website and did it that way. Sometimes it's just the best yeah, way to start. Exactly. It's to just, just get something up there and then just fi- figure it yeah. out later. Just like make it look nice yeah. later. Making it sound, so I guess the way you've said it sounds quite humble and like, oh, yeah, I was just quickly making some little uh-huh. earring holders <laughs> at home. When did things really start to escalate? Like when were you like, wow, okay, I've made, I mean, I'm not very great at maths, but say like a million holes divided by 234 <laughs> holes in each earring holder. Like how many units were you turning over when you thought, okay, 
if we're going to do this properly, this is going to be the business. It's time to go all in, like let's go manufacturing, all of yeah, that. Yeah, we were getting to the point where I was, um, I'd completely taken over the lounge room and the dining table and we were probably producing a few hundred units a week um, by hand and these started yeah. becoming like mini ones, hanging ones, standing ones, mega ones because earrings, like once you're an earring lover, it's like an addiction. I think um, I have a lady still who has about 23 of my earring holders all on her wall um, because that's just oh her gosh. passion, which is amazing. But, um, yeah, it got to the point where there was sawdust everywhere. Every surface was kind of covered in blank uh, wooden earring holders that I still had yet to paint and I was falling behind. So I used to paint to order. So I'd wait until somebody would put it in the comments what they wanted and I'd just do it. And then we swapped that to painting stock so people could only purchase what we had. Um, And then it turned into outsourcing the drilling side of things. So I outsourced to my husband for a bit. He'd disappear on the weekend (laughs) for like, you know, 18 hours a day drilling these holes. Um, and I thought, oh, yeah. I thought you were going to say he just disappeared to oh, yeah. get away from the, to get away from the business. <laughs> yeah. Well, I did rope him in pretty harshly. Um, he now works with me, but um, uh, it, it just got too much. And so I outsourced um, the actual board creation to a local laser cutter, which laser cutting really wasn't a huge thing back then, but it's, you know, now so massive. Um, and then I brought that back in house. I bought my own machine and then I disappeared into the garage for about 18 hours a day because I was just cutting so many boards. And then at that point I thought, well, maybe there's going to be somebody who would be able to help on a larger scale. I found some person in Australia, nobody else would help me because cutting, uh, 234 holes, uh, takes a lot of time. And the amount that I was going to spend per unit, um, just for the supplies was going to shut down my business. So I decided to look offshore. Mm. Um, and at that point, uh, I had the quality, I had the technique, I knew exactly what I wanted. So it was really easy to find somebody with the same machinery, but you know, 20 machines to be able to do what I needed and remove that handmade element, um, of it that just allowed us to expand. I find it so interesting the way you were just kind of saying, it's almost like you dipped your foot in and out of getting to a, a yeah. manufacturing part, like a, sorry, a manufacturing partner. You were kind of like doing it yourself and then try one little bit with someone else and then one little bit and then, oh, there's a machine that exists. I'll just yeah. do it myself but with the machine. It's almost like you exhausted all avenues yeah. but hundreds yes. a week. that turned into like, thousands. <laughs> that, oh when did you think, okay, this this is a business let's expand the product range because what your products have in, well, from in my words, what your products have in common, I think, are they just make life easier, right? That's the whole vibe, making things easier. Handy accessories. What's the slogan? What's Very your slogan? handy accessories that solve your daily annoyances. <laughs> there you go. Perfect. So when did you start thinking, okay, there's more than earring holders? What can I kind of make yeah, next? By this point, I was struggling with a bit of a, brand identity um, because Mm. I still in my head was an artist rather than a business owner so much and I still had portraits and art prints in the business and I thought this like I'm earring holders and I'm portraits how what's my slogan I can't even figure out what my tagline's going to be so I had to let go of that side of the business and that was um, an end of a chapter but it kind of really started defining what it is that you know Bon Maxi was um because the artistic kind of side of it was still something that I wanted to implement, I had this old bag that had given out on me just completely 
off topic um, and mm. I thought, oh, wouldn't that be cool if like I don't really see many patterned bags around that have really nice bright colours. Maybe I need to look into designing an accessory like earrings are nice and colourful. Maybe I'll do some colourful bags. So I started the process of finding a, a, like a surface pattern designer to create a design for me. I started looking at what would my perfect bag include and it just started to snowball from there and I started researching like strap, strap, bag strap lengths and widths, sizes of bags, what it is that I wanted to fit in bags, pockets, all of that stuff and the list of what I wanted to include in this bag became longer and longer and longer. And in the end, it turned out to not be that I wanted to introduce patent bags into the market but it was to introduce a bag that solved all of the things that I didn't think many other bags were doing. Mm -hmm. So that was probably a two-year process before I got to that point of releasing my first bag. And then on top of it, there was a a need for me as somebody who was still going out, you know, here and there with friends where I'd dump everything out of my large wallet, put it into a card holder, put it into a coin purse, and then Mm -hmm. put it into a small bag. And then come Monday when I needed my large wallet again, I'd just throw everything back in my big bag and I had three wallets. And I thought, okay, there's going to be a, a solution around there somewhere that's like a mini wallet that I can just use all the time. And I looked and I looked and I looked and there was card card holders galore and coin purses galore, but there was nothing that just married them together that would fit in my Mm. pocket, that would fit in every single small bag. And so that kind of started to create a theme with the business of of solving these problems with accessories mm-hmm. and it just went from there. So it kind of progressed from earring holders and lots of jewellery organisation products. So I was experimenting with watch holders and brooch holders and all of the things that were so niche that a very small people, mm-hmm. you know, very small group of people would like but it wasn't really necessarily profitable for me to create them. So I had to just leave them. You have to let go of so many ideas um, in business and, yeah, just progress from there. It's, I was going to say, is that when you kind of thought, aha, my thing is, my thing is organisation. I didn't think this for yeah. myself, but my thing is organisation. Yeah, I did think jewellery organisation was my category, but it just, it wasn't picking up. Like the earring holders were going great. Um, but mm-hmm. necklace storage, I mean, people have one or two necklaces or they have a lot and they put it on a hook over the, the door. So Kmart mm-hmm. was selling over the door hook. So it wasn't really something that I could then create a better version of it. So I had to just let that go. And yeah, that's when it all of the ideas started to come out where I'm like, oh, this is an issue for me. I can fix that and do this and create a bigger bag and a smaller bag and weekender bags and planners and, yeah, it kind of went from there. Do you still sell your original earring holders? Is that still a product that's popular for the brand? Uh, No, actually, because they were wooden products and there are so many limitations to wooden earring holders and I feel like I'd be the world expert on earring storage um (laughs) but I had to take all of the feedback from every customer like my certain hooks don't fit in this wood because it's you know four mil thick and I can't go thinner with wood because it'll break in transit the hooks uh, the hoops don't fit or I've got brooches I want to add on to it like how can I solve all these problems and it ended up being uh that I was starting to get many many imitation products that were coming onto the market. Mm. People started calling their earring holders Bon Maxi and it wasn't until one particular copycat brand was starting to imitate every single product that I had in the business that I thought, oh, this is getting too close to home. I'd had a lot of imitation products over the years that people would try and do it and they'd just fall off the radar because they didn't have the passion or the creativity. They just wanted Mm -hmm. because we seemed successful and they wanted to do the same thing. 
And so this one particular brand, I started to get like feel really claustrophobic and I thought I'm getting threatened here. It's probably Mm -hmm. time that I need to review what I'm doing. Otherwise, you know, this is affecting my brain. And when you get stuck in your own head, you can't really move on with things, even though you should just put your blinkers on and keep moving. Were they a big brand? Not really, but she didn't seem to care that the uh, website copy was very similar. The logo was similar. Taglines were similar. It just was too close to home. And legalities. Did you send? Yeah, so did you send a cease oh, and desist? Not much she can do in Australia, is there? Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> so I and I had very early on in the day. We had about ten just pop up that were identical. That were trying to use the same logo, and I sent out letters, mm. and I got abuse back. And I thought, is that oh, really gosh. where I want to be spending my time, or do we just need to run faster? So that's what spurred this next kind of transition into metal earring holders that was a big manufacturing change but metal means that we're able to have an easy drop system so you put your earring back on you don't even have to think where it goes and you just drop it straight in we could make ring holders you know out of these side wing bits hold necklaces all types of earrings and it was just the next kind of game changer move for the earring holder side of the business and so far, knock on wood, there hasn't been anything that's even come close to what the functionality is of that product. So I'm really proud of that one. You <laughs> beat <it>. them all. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you started going from the mm-hmm. earring holders, jewelry kind of organization vibe, then, then you were talking about bringing in the bags. So you've got the mini wallet that goes inside the bags and also what you wanted in your dream yep. handbag. They're very, look, I'm not design minded. They're very different yep. things to earring holders and I assume very, very different manufacturing processes, different contacts, different factories, all of that. When you started moving into the new generation of products that are more Mm -hmm. accessories based, did you have any, I guess, hurdles in terms of bringing the products to life? Because I guess the good thing with the earring holders is you could start just doing Mm -hmm. it at home, right? Whereas you can't really, I mean, maybe you could start making a handbag at home. I'm not sure, but how did that look for you? It was a process and that's why it took two years to get that first, you know, final product to market because I had to learn, you know, a bag might be stitched a certain way. There's particular linings that would work. Um, You know, straps need to be a certain proportion if it's going to be a certain type of bag. And so there were all of these elements that I didn't even know I had to know because I thought you'd just, you know, send off to a manufacturer and you go, just make this. I really wanted to understand every single process so that if anything went wrong, which of course it always does because product, um, you know, Mm -hmm. production on scale always equates to a certain percentage of issues that you just cannot foresee, which is the most frustrating part. But because I understand the process, I can then, you know, now, you know, four or five, six, seven bag styles in, I can try and think, well, this might be an issue when I'm designing. So let's just try and counteract that before it even goes into production or, you know, sampling. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been a huge process, but you're just forever learning, I think, when it comes to to outsourcing. Did you use multiple manufacturers or have you stayed with the same ones? We've had about three now so far. We've got two bag manufacturers, both working with different materials. So one's like a leather expert and another another one's like a nylon, you know, based kind of company. So I feel like that's really worked well because you learn one thing in one, you know, material and you have to implement in another one. And it also means that during COVID and in any production issues, you've got diversification. So you've got a little bit of protection in that sense that if one person's closed down, you still might have stock being produced by somebody else. 
yeah, I had a nightmare when my manufacturer of my last business, they just, someone, they quit and then they shut down all of production yeah. and I had nowhere else to yeah, turn. I had to go back to hand-making product. It can really make or break yeah, a absolutely. business or a yeah. product. You have to trust a lot. Now, obviously by this mm-hmm. point, I'm going to make an assumption. You are no longer using the free trial <laughs> on Big <Yeah>. Cartel. <laughs> What was your marketing and everything like around that time? Because obviously Instagram still like is a big thing yeah. for you. And I mean, I love as well. I love your TikToks. You always, <laughs> I'm sure you always see me. You get a lot of likes on them, I'm sure. But I'm always, I really love your content as well. So I wanted to talk about like what, when did that start to become a bit more, I guess, like for lack of a better word, like professional, like you did the proper store, mm. started marketing more is it once you had money coming in from the product yeah I think it was about I mean Shopify even their first kind of plan is quite cheap to do anyway it was when the limitations of Big Cartel became really obvious like when I had more than five products and I was like oh the functionality (laughs) on this is a little bit clunky I'd love to have a drop down menu for hardware options or whatever it was at the time and so like I just started researching and into what bigger businesses had and Shopify just kept coming up again and again but it was probably about a year and a bit into it so I think it was late 2016 that I transitioned over which was a huge process to you know shift everything over and then tell everyone that you've you're shut down for a little bit before you you reopen again Mm -hmm. but I couldn't have done it any earlier and I probably wouldn't have wanted to wait any later. That's I like when people kind of share that it's okay to start with the Mm. basic minimum viable product version or minimum viable version of a website and a social media and everything to get started and then make those tweaks that you need to to while you scale like it doesn't have to be perfect from the start you know if you had have waited how long would it take to get a product to market exactly and I think that's the benefit of being a handmade brand is that you've got every single touch point is controlled by you so if something does go wrong I can fix it on the next product like you know if that breaks I'm there to do one, whereas when it comes to manufacturing, you don't really have that control so much. As you have grown, you have a lot of different products. Um, how, how many, do you know off the top of your head, how many different products you've got oh, in the range? It's probably about 100 SKUs, but with multiple colours in there. I, I don't even know now. It's probably 50. <laughs> I don't know. Wow. So you have a lot. Um, let's just say mm. you have a lot. That, that's a really solid number. Have you had problems in terms of scaling like with manufacturers or like you said like their issues come with scaling what were they for you um to start I suppose it's just how quickly can we get the product here and that's been the main issue is that all of the products that we have are very intricate (laughs) whether it be the bags or our metal earring holders for example there's a mold that we had created so they used to be hand bent and they were laser cut so it still wasn't any quicker to make it in metal than it was in wood with all of the little holes. And so we had to fork out, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to create these molds so they could punch create them. But then there's still powder coating, waiting for that coat to dry, packaging, you know, it's a huge process. So yeah, time to market is is a huge factor for us. And the handbags not being stock standard kind of a bucket with a handle. There's a lot of lining and internal features that have to be produced by someone and something that it's it's just keeping stuff in stock. So creating demand for something is great, but when the demand is greater than the stock that you have, there's a bit of disparity with how quickly you can actually move through <laughs> the business ranks to the next level. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because that could just be my mm-hmm. next question. It's like I've sent you these <laughs> in advance, but <laughs> you are known 
to sell out of your products very mm-hmm. quickly after launch. I think, was it the crossbody bag? How quickly you sold it? How quickly did you sell out of yeah, that? Yeah, the sidekick bag was something that really surprised me. Um, they're not cheap bags because quality is such a focus of mine and the features, again, are something that, I mean, they cost money to have extra bits inside bags. Um, our first launch, we sold out within a couple of days and then COVID happened we had to wait eight months for stock to arrive. Um, and I thought, oh, surely, surely like our business is done for now. You know, the hype's gone. Are our products actually that much better than what you can find in, in market already? And then we sold, yeah, we sold out within 10 minutes on the next launch. So it just completely blew me away that we actually had support for something that, um, yeah, had people had been waiting for for a year. And we won't, I won't go into financial specifics, but that's a six figure sellout in 10 yes. minutes. Yeah, I, I fell off my chair. It lot. was a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. When you're getting results like that, is are you doing waiting lists? Are you kind of keeping in regular communication with your email list and on social media? Like, how are you driving that hype? Um, I think because we lean into color a little bit. People, especially now, the neon pink is just a thing. And we mm-hmm. produced these pink bags earlier this year before, like the Barbie movie was announced and Valentino had a whole, you know, um, event with neon pink. Um, our products are really recognisable out in the market or, you know, just in public. Mm-hmm. And we're finding that a lot of people offline are approaching our customers and going, where have you gotten your bag from? So unbeknownst to us, we're getting a lot of hype offline and then that converts into online hype. And then we have people like Mia Friedman from Mamma Mia, um, you know, just organically repost things or, um, you know, do a feature on our products. So the hype is just building, building, building on socials. And then, of course, um, wait lists on our product listings are really important because people want to know when it's going to be back in stock and they want to be notified the second that it's back. And then the marketing side of things. So being a marketer at heart, um, I like to do, you know, two or three weeks of build up before the restock is happening or a new product is dropping where I go through every single detail about the product. I try and style it, you know, in a neutral way and then a colorful way. And I answer lots of questions. And I think that's potentially the benefit of having a small business is that I'm able to do those kind of things, whereas larger businesses probably wouldn't invest so much time into one person being there mm-hmm. online um, in the lead up to to something launching or relaunching. I find, okay, two things mm-hmm. I want to talk about there. First off is that's, I think, a really good takeaway. If you have a product-based business and it's something, you know, you do go out of stock, there's the opportunity there to capture interest with a register yep. for the wait list rather than just being out of stock and hopefully the customer emails. And then the second one, I guess, as well, is like if you're talking about your product for a few weeks before it launches, I think there is a tendency some people want to keep everything super quiet Mm -hmm. until Mm -hmm. it's available, but you're doing the opposite. You're building hype by saying, hey, look, this is the actual product. This is what it does. This is how you use it. This is how you style it. This is why it's great. Have you had people asking, like have you ever had negative pushback on that? That's what I find really hard is that with our long you know, periods of production is that you have to keep saying, well, it's about six to seven weeks away, please sign up to the restock. Mm. And then if um, you get really great customer pictures on stories that you want to repost, you then have to kind of put that disclaimer that these aren't in stock, but please wait, we'll be back soon. Um, I think, yeah, it is frustrating and I would understand that it would be quite frustrating as a customer, Um, but I feel as though we retain those people 
quite well because everything is so different and the colors are so different and the features are so different. So we have people that do get frustrated, but at the end of the day, if they want the bag, they'll wait around for it. I guess I would say your brand really has like brand fans. Yes. Not just customers. Fanatics. We've had uh, people who have eight or nine colors of the one bag. We've had people who tell us that they've put their Louis Vuitton back on the shelf because the functionality is just not what they want compared to our bag. So yeah, I think it's amazing that we have that support because uh, like somebody just messaged me the other day saying that um, somebody approached her saying, where'd you get your pink bag from? And she said, and then I gave him the sales pitch. I'm like, I don't even have to do my work anymore. I can just stand back and let everybody <laughs> else do it. So that's like, we've got true fans who are quite happy to um to chat to everybody else about it, which is amazing. That's so important. I think that fostering that community and and I guess by when you're sharing all the behind the scenes of the brand and answering questions and giving that kind of two-way mm. communication with your customers, you're just growing and strengthening that community, Yeah, right? absolutely. And that's the benefit of Instagram stories, you know, polls and question boxes. And that I think that's probably a good pivot, you know, in our business when I started asking questions, what colours do you want in the next one? Do you want gold hardware or do you want gunmetal hardware? Do you want both? Um, You know, is this size serving you or do you want me to change the strap length or all of that? So being able to to ask and get the feedback instantaneously and implement Mm. that straight away has just been incredible. And without having to pay for like market research or something like that, (laughs) you can actually just ask them directly for free. So that's okay. That's another good takeaway. So I'm just like making a little (laughs) list in my head now of the takeaways. So we've got a waiting list, but we're also communicating openly Mm -hmm. and asking for feedback from customers. What would you improve? What do you want to see next? And helping that inform your strategy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, going back to, I just keep harping on about the neon pink bag because I'm still really baffled by it. Uh, black was always our bestseller and then suddenly it's just been overturned by this neon pink and it was probably about mid last year that I thought I would like a neon pink bag but that's me and I know that that's quite a niche you know desire for people because Mm -hmm. it's just so bright I hopped onto stories I'm like I have this idea and I don't usually give away too much because I do like to be a bit secretive ahead of launches but I'm Mm -hmm. like I have an idea to do a neon pink bag who's interested and everyone's like yeah 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 love it And I'm like, really though? And so we were quite conservative with our first launch and that just went within minutes. I'm like, oh, okay, so you weren't lying. And then, um, yeah, we've had to, (laughs) like, I just keep joking, we're going to uh, rebrand the whole business to be the pinkbagshop.com or something like that because it's just overwhelming. Nice easy URL, (laughs) pinkbagshop.com. If you were starting, I know this is is a bit of a, I like to ask this mm. question because there are people who are probably in business kind of conception stage, but I know it is a bit hard to probably think about when you've been in business for, I guess, seven, seven yeah. years now. If you were starting from scratch mm-hmm. today, what do you think is something you might do that would be like the most important or significant thing for your business? Starting from scratch, I just ask questions of consumers. It is so easy, mm-hmm. um, especially as a com- consumer ourselves. We just assume that we know everything and our taste is yep. the same as everyone else. The power of Instagram and the ability to have that two-way conversation is something that you just don't get. I mean, even TikTok, it's super harsh on TikTok and you're often faced with strangers. Like you have most people who see your videos as strangers and they're very, very harsh 17 year olds mm-hmm. <laughs> and it makes you just question your life choices um but instagram you know if you're able to build that community even if it's small i mean they're talking about nano influencers now not even micro so they've, they've already built these communities and if you've got that there and you're able to ask people questions it's a really decent cross-section of your community um see what they want 
if you've got your idea, put it past them. Why not vet your idea before you even spend a dollar? Um, and then at least you know that you've got a solid kind of foundation and a desire for what you're creating before you've even started. Yep. So I guess that what's how do what's the business like term product for that? Like validation product validation exactly. yes yeah. product validation yeah. do, do you do a lot with influencers just because you quickly touched on it there or is that something new to your brand it's hard because we don't have stock I mean that's been my focus for the last two years is to really build up our stock yeah. levels of our our key products so that we can keep marketing it. We have a lot of earring makers that will just spruik our brand because they love the product. Mm-hmm. Um, we have affiliates. That's been a really brilliant um, move for us to have people who actively were customers beforehand and then we've offered them incentives to continue to market the product. Um, influencers themselves, we've dabbled in you know paying influencers, but it hasn't really materialised into the direct sell, you know, direct sales dollars wise, which is you know, you say that it's meant to be a brand awareness activity, but at the end of the day, you still Mm -hmm. want sales from it. So investing and not getting that is a really difficult thing to do. We have sponsored podcasts before. We sponsored Shameless back in the day when they were, you know, relatively new. And that was great because Mm -hmm. the target market for them really aligned with ours. So yeah, influencers is something that it's a hard one because I think it's just turning into needing to contact existing customers who have a platform rather than paying somebody who's never heard of you before um, and asking them to like your product and then share your product. And I want to ask about the whole affiliate Mm. thing. Are you just, these are just like everyday random customers who like the brand and shop the brand regularly and you're giving them the opportunity to share it. Yeah. And then they earn a commission from every sale that comes through using their link. So some of them are influencers, but they, I only approach mm-hmm. them if they've, you know, tagged me and stuff. And I know that they've actually purchased mm-hmm. our stuff before because naturally mm-hmm. they already know the, the values of our brand. They know the product and they will happily promote it and earn something yes. in return. So I found that it's just way easier to convert somebody who's already shopped with us. And then it just means that they're benefiting from it as well if they continue sharing. And I feel like it would be much more genuine than someone who's just yeah. opened the parcel. You've sent them going, hey, guys, this is a bag I use every yeah. day. And it's like still got the plastic exactly. yeah. um, around it. So that's really, I like that tip as well. I think that's something a lot of brands can implement. I mean, when you use things like Shopify, you can see people that are ordering regularly that are obviously fans of the yeah. brand. And like I would, I think as a customer, I would be excited if a brand that I shop a lot was like, hey, Jen, we really like that you like our serum. Mm. Um, We'd love to share a code. I'd be like, "Um, shit, yeah. That's it. And I think too is that like 2,000 followers is still 2,000 people that you can talk to. So it doesn't Mm -hmm. really matter whether you've got 10K on on social media or not. Um, But consistently we start to see, you know, customers pop up who are posting photos every week and they're starting to feel like they want to share their lives on social media. Mm -hmm. And so if they're going to create really great content for free anyway, it's great to be able to say, thanks so much for sharing that here. Do you want to offer this to your customers? And you can start to potentially make a bit of a side business out of sharing Mm -hmm. these links as well. So they start to, to really get invested in, in the brand too. That is so clever. And I think as well, I'm so influenced by my Mm. friends. Like if people post, if my friends post something and go, oh, I bought this, I really like it, I'm going to trust them because I'm like, well, you obviously, I know you. You know what I mean? You're not someone I just, I follow. That's very clever. Good for you. What a clever idea. (laughs) (laughs) 
So, I mean, looking back, I guess, at the seven, like, you know, like we said, it's been the last seven years. Is there anything you would do differently that you, I mean, it's led you to a really great mm. place, but is there anything you kind of would have wish you could have avoided? And So, the whole packing orders thing is something that I just feel like nobody needs to put themselves through. We used to pack orders until one o'clock in the morning every night. Like my poor husband would go off to work. He was a dietitian back in the day. Um, He'd go and see clients and then he'd come home and I'd make him like build products and then package orders into one and then our son would get up at three and then he'd have to go off to work again and often nap under his desk because he was just that tired. So outsourcing the packaging of products, even if it's within your team in-house, but we ended up moving to a third-party logistics company which we handed everything over on Christmas Eve before we had a sale starting the next day it was the best feeling ever Um, so now especially when it comes to sales or new products I don't stop marketing them whereas back then I would you know we've got too many orders oh I have to pack them tomorrow I'm just going to keep quiet on Mm -hmm. socials because I just don't want to have to create more work for myself Mm -hmm. whereas when somebody's being paid per order that comes through their system and that's their job, it is so, so much easier for me to just push and push and push with our marketing and know that it's all taken care of. How good that first day, Christmas Eve, to be like, yes, like watching on Boxing Day, I guess, probably yeah. Boxing Day sales, right? Watching the Shopify notifications coming in going, that is not Yeah, my, my job was done. It was amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when? How many years into the business did you do that? Uh, I'd started looking So 2015, I'd started looking probably 2017. I still had this, like I didn't let go of needing to do everything myself because I have a big trust issue with, you know, handing stuff over. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I started looking into anyone around who might be able to help. And I think in Brisbane, especially small to medium business, third-party logistics just isn't really a thing, whereas down in Sydney and Melbourne, Mm -hmm. there's a lot more available. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we went off to a really huge Star Trek warehouse and they had car parts, they had most motorcycle bits that they were going to be packaging, my delicate little wooden earring holders in amongst all of them, Mm. guys in high vis. I'm like, are you actually going to take care of my small business? And I really wasn't confident that that was the right move. And it was just Mm -hmm. by chance. And I think this is the amazing thing about business networking and, you know, talking to other business owners. I had a coffee with an accessories, um, an earring, uh, business owner. Um, and she said, oh, I just went to a conference last week and I sat next to a lady who said that she wants to open up a warehouse because she feels like there's a gap in the market for small to medium businesses. I'm like, what's her number? I need her right now. I've been looking for, you know, six, six months to a year. Um, called her up and then within a week or two weeks, we had everything over to her and she'd literally just gotten her warehouse and was starting from scratch. So yeah, it, it was a process, but it's just one of the best things we've ever done. <laughs> I mean, looking back over the business journey, there's highs and lows. Tell me about your lowest low in business and then on the flip side, what's been your highest high? It's kind of a mix. We've kind of touched on the copycat side of things, so I'll touch on something else. And it's a mix of personal and business. Mm-hmm. Um, it was probably about six months into into business that my son fell quite ill. It turns out he has a genetic condition and... I was in hospital with him for about a week over that first, the first year of business. We didn't know what was going on. He was having seizures and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I'm not going to be able to market my business. I was, I had gone back part-time to my job at that point. And I was really struggling with the concept of 
of stopping everything and, you know, people will forget mm-hmm. who I am. I'm not posting. I'm not on my website. I'm not packing orders. And at that point I got an email from a stockist in New Zealand who placed an order for a thousand dollars of art prints at that point. And I just burst into tears because I thought I've made money while I'm in hospital with my son. Um, and so that was a really awful time, but it was such a light bulb moment where I thought, if this is something that can create a bit of passive income from, yes, I had to go home and pack those orders at that point because we didn't have the 3PL then. Mm-hmm. Um, but to be able to to step back and live life sometimes when you own a business, um, it's been really powerful for us, especially as a family. And my husband, like I said, is is working in the business with me. Some days, like I don't log onto my a computer until after dinner because we've had that many appointments during the day. Um, so the flexibility uh, over the years has just been incredible. So it's just like an ongoing high of, of realising that this is where I've always needed to be in life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's kind of why it's hard because you're so, especially those, you know, first few years, you're so bogged mm-hmm. down in all the details and the everyday operations of the brand, you can become, I guess, kind of resentful. I mean, this is talking from my experience. I've had times that I've been so resentful and I didn't want orders to come through and all yeah. of that because I just wanted to live yeah. my life. But when you when you get into that groove of things and, yeah, I, I can live my life and look after things that are important yeah. to you like family, that's, I guess, the power of being a business yeah. owner. And I suppose, you know, business ownership is, is ebbs and flows of happiness, sadness, frustration. I hate it. I throw it all in. But that's just the nature of, of working for yourself is that you, you will always have those struggles and that's the, not everybody is cut out for it. And that's why not mm-hmm. everybody owns a business. Um, but it is such a, an incredible position to be in because you do really have ultimate control over your life. Have you ever come close to throwing in the towel? Uh, personally, I don't think I could become an employee again. <laughs> so mm-hmm. even though I felt like I, I think- could, um, you know, if something's really or customer feedback or somebody's angry at Australia Post but they attack us instead, like those moments to me really I take everything on board because it's still a reflection on my business. So there has been times that I'm like, I just cannot deal with this anymore. I'm so tired. I'm sick of making things, dealing with people. Um, but the alternative is just so much worse for me. <laughs> Entrepreneurs make horrible employees. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Speaking from experience of myself, <laughs> we are not the people to I know, employ. we don't want to be told what to do now. <laughs> no, definitely not. Um, do you have a piece of advice that you've been given or that you could share with business owners listening that you think might be valuable? Um, it goes on, you know, the topic of not being told what to do. Stay stubborn. I think there are so many times where I've been told no, whether it be we can't manufacture that, that's not possible, we don't have machinery to do that, There's not, we can't do that on your website or, I mean, even the 3PL couldn't find anybody in Brisbane who might be able to help. But being a bit headstrong and being really stubborn in business I think is such a great personality trait because you just keep going and you fight and fight and fight. If you in your heart know that it's something that you want to do, if you can fight to find that way, I think that's that's when you succeed. Stay stubborn. Oh, yeah. That needs to be on yep. a shirt or a mug or so. <laughs> yeah. a bag, I guess. Watch this face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Next minute, it's a bright yeah. pink stay stubborn bag. <laughs> if you could go back and do it all over again, would you? Yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah, why not? <laughs> um, looking back at uh, previous jobs, I've really felt constrained 
now, mm-hmm. like I see that I really want to just spend more time being creative or thinking and you, you don't get paid for just sitting there thinking. And so mm-hmm. now the freedom to, to spend as much time as I want doing the things that I love. I mean, who wouldn't want that? <laughs> yep. Good. Yep. I love that answer. And if people want to find you and your bright bags and all of your sold out <laughs> items, where can we find you on social? Uh, it's all Bon Maxi, so B O N M A X I E on TikTok, Pinterest, Instagram, Facebook, um, and then I'm on LinkedIn as Claire Spelter. I think everyone who is a product based business owner who kind of has been thinking or at least seeing TikTok and feeling a bit intimidated and what the hell do I post? I don't want to do dances, mm-hmm. like, because same. <laughs> um, go and look at Claire's TikTok. It is really, you do such a good job. You've got a nice following there, but you're not dancing around or <laughs> doing anything like that. You're talking about the products in an educational, not super salesy way. I think it really resonates. So if you are a product-based business owner, intimidated about the thought of doing TikToks, please go and have a look at Claire's account. You do a really good job. Thanks, I really Jen. like it. I have four videos on this. So <laughs> I, that's, on my, that's on my to-do list is to be better at TikTok. But thank you so much for chatting to me. It's been so nice to get to know you over the last year or so. Great work on starting such an awesome brand. And there's a reason you're selling out in minutes, literally minutes. So good luck for your next launch. And thank you so much for joining me on the podcast Thanks. today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Behind the Brand. Now, guys, if you love today's episode, I would love if you would leave me a review over on Apple Podcasts. And for your time, I will send you a copy of a press release template that you can use in your small business straight away. So all you need to do is pop onto the Apple Podcasts app, leave a written review, take a screenshot, head over to Instagram and DM it to me over at at behindthebrand.podcast and I will email you your press release template. Sound like a good deal? Talk soon.